So, for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Adam Wojcik. Um, my wife and I, Alexa, are pretty new to VIA within the last year and a half. Um, uh, we work and live at Wagner Hills, uh, the men's campus uh, just east of uh, Fort Langley. So I work at the men's campus, I run the program, and then my wife, uh, who's on maternity leave right now, she works at the women's campus. She was their, uh, their flower farmer, she started their whole flower pro program floral arrangements, and then she's also one of the pastoral counselors there. And uh, yeah, we've just been so blessed being a part of VIA, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. And uh, again, it's another one of those, you'll see in my story, uh, these types of invitations, I can very quickly disqualify myself. And part of my journey is, is learning that uh, God is, is continually inviting us into spaces where our qualifications kind of hit their threshold, and then he has to kind of fill the gaps. And I think he's so intentional in that. So my topic for today is simple. It's just called Follow Me. And the, the subtitle I have is that your number one vocation in life is to be a disciple of Jesus. So as we think about vocation, as we think about the trajectory of our lives, first and foremost, if there's any job title we have, it's to be a disciple. And that's to be a student, a lifelong student of Jesus. One who follows, one who listens, one who whose intent is upon upon him. But I wanted to start with something very practical. So if everybody has a cue card, anybody need a pen, grab one. This is something that um, it was actually Chad. Uh, he didn't intentionally try and lead me into this process, but it's something that uh, he walked me into because I'm a hobbyist. So I've, I've always loved starting hobbies. Uh, I have a range of things, whether it's bread making, beer making. Um, I've kind of delved into a lot of things. And I'm, I'm all in, kind of obsessive. And then when I, when I feel like I've mastered it, then I'm all done. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really, uh, it's an interesting problem. Um, but what I've learned in my life is that I've always been looking for a job description. Like what? Bread make, or you know, bakers, they make bread, they make desserts. Brewers make beer. Carpenters make houses. And I've always been kind of perplexed as to like, God, what did you design me to do? And I know, I know who God's designed me to be. I know that I am a son of his. I know that I'm invited into his kingdom, into his family. But there's still this part of me that's like, okay, but what, what about the practicalities of my day to day? Like, what, what have you called me to do? And so it was Chad that kind of prompted me. It's like, well, like, ask God. Ask God what he's designed you to do. What has he engineered you specifically to do? And so I began this process of praying and asking, like, okay, Lord, like, beyond being a disciple and a son of, of you, what have you wired me to do? And he actually gave me a job title. And it's something that has been an anchor for me, specifically in the last year and a half year and a half of my life, but it's also helped me understand the context of my story to this point, because it's a random smattering of stories and jobs, and it was hard for me to piece together, but what, what, what's the common denominator in any of this? And the job title was, Adam, I've created you to be a craftsman of relationships. And for me, that was just loaded with me, because I, I got what that meant. And for me, it's a craftsman is somebody who works with brick and stone and all sorts of building materials. They're, they can do a demolition project, they can do a renovation, they can build from the ground up. And that's every job I've ever had. It's always been in the context of helping people renovate, reconstruct, do some demolition in their relationships, and rebuild. 
And so now I have kind of this banner to operate under that helps me discern, like, okay, Lord, like, are you calling me into this? Do you want me to do this? And then I can also discern when I'm beginning to branch out of that. Um, so it's been very helpful, especially in the last year when I'm tempted to kind of pursue other things or I get intrigued by a new opportunities. Like, nope, that's that's not going to actually allow me to work my job description. I'm moving outside the realm of being a craftsman relationship, and now I'm moving to individualistic territory, or this is all about just making quick money. So that for me is really helpful. So what I want to start with is I just want you to write your name, your full name, on that piece of paper. And after you write your full name, I want you to just go down the line and put is a dot dot dot. And as we go through this talk, and maybe even as you go through the weekend, I want you to keep this with you and begin to fill in some of the descriptors of what God might be just wanting to remind you, like, hey, this is what I've made you to do. This is who I've made you through and through to be. Because when we know who made us, and when we understand the good news of who sustains us, there's, there's this piece where it's like, okay, so the day-to-day, Lord, what are you calling me to do? And this is where I think getting into the conversation of what does it mean to be a disciple practically is where I want to take us this morning. So I'm going to pray, and I'll probably come back to those cue cards a couple times throughout our talk. And... Uh, and I, my prayer is that God will actually give you some specific things today. Maybe that you already know and you just need to be reminded of them. Or maybe there's a new, a new word or a new title um, that will just help kind of give you something. Something to actually come out of this week and like, yeah, this is what you made me to do. This is who you made me to be. So Lord, we thank you um, for the ways that you invite us to a lifelong journey of discipleship, of being a student of you. And as we kind of delve into the stories of the first disciples, God, we recognize that many of them had to um, go through intense processes of relearning. They had to let go of old identities. They had to address pain and wounds in their life. They had to learn to work with people that they never would have ever chosen to work with. And all of this was so intentional as you're shaping and forming us so that we can actually live fully and um, get back to the, the very intent that you have for us when you created us. And so I do pray, Lord, that your spirit would just breathe on this talk because without your presence, it's just, it's just more information, but if your presence is here, it actually can ignite change. And so I do pray that um, our hearts will be open and our ears will be attentive to the things that you want to speak to us specifically but then what you also want to speak to us in a, in a generic way as the body of Christ. We pray. Amen. The call to be a disciple. The most essential title for all of us to, to wear and to hold. And I want to start with a story. So I work at Wagner Hills Farm. It's a one-year residential addiction recovery program for men and women. And early on in my job, um, I, I would bring in guest speakers, and because I was new to the job, I actually didn't know most of the people who were kind of on their guest speaker list. And so this one gentleman came in, he had a huge, huge bodybuilding guy, 
tattoos, and uh, he came in and uh, his talk was on discipleship. I'm like, okay, yeah, very good topic. And the first thing he did is uh, he introduced himself. He says, how many of you in this room are believers in Jesus Christ? All the hands went up. And I'm like, okay, interesting, interesting intro. And he's like, second question, how many of you are disciples of Jesus Christ? And I just saw this moment of like, panic and confusion. Those hands were like, uh, I don't know. And I just, and it dawned on me, it's like, there's, there's something distinct in that question that is actually prompting people to question, am I a disciple? What is a disciple? I know I believe, but what does that actually mean? And so in that awkward silence, I'm observing from the back, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on here. What, what, is, that, what is that question getting at that's prompting people to not know whether they can actually respond yes or no? They can respond that they believe. They can respond that they've accepted Jesus into their heart at some point. But they can't answer the, they weren't able to answer the question, am I actually a disciple? And I wonder how many other people outside of that context of Waver Hills would have the same issue maybe answering that question. Am I a disciple? Like, has, has, my, has my devotion to Christ actually amounted to that descriptor? Or am I outside the bounds of that? And I think even for me, if I was put in that seat, and again, I'm sitting in the back, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta figure out. Like, I'm supposed to be the, the, the program manager, and I'm, I'm kind of going through an internal battle. Like, Am I a disciple? And I think what, what happened in that is I realized that I've kind of put this, this, this class of disciple in this higher category. It's just kind of like for the super devoted, the super committed, the deluxe version Christian. And... Uh, and it was almost like, yeah, like I put the, the title of disciple in the, in the category of like a professional athlete. Like, there's the professionals and then there's the amateurs like me. And I'm just kind of fumbling through trying to make it happen on my own. So, I found this question intriguing. And our modern Christian context has been more focused on conversion than discipleship. And I think this has caused a lot of confusion. And I think I was witnessing that in that moment. I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, but I think a lot of people would advise that, yeah, I believe I'm a, I, I, I think Jesus is who he says he is. But then to go to this very personal question, like, are you actually a lifelong disciple? Do you actually follow him as a, um, as a first century disciple would have? Dallas Willard is one of my favorite uh, authors, and uh, I know that uh, Nathan and Sarah, you've probably heard this quote, but I want to read it because I think it's so good just to kind of set the course of our conversation. When Jesus walked among humankind, there was a certain simplicity to being a disciple. Primarily, it meant to go with him in an attitude of study, obedience, and imitation. There were no correspondence courses. One knew what to do and what it would cost. Simon Peter exclaimed, look, we left everything and followed you in Mark 10:28." Family and occupations were deserted for long periods to go with Jesus as he walked from place to place, announcing, showing, and explaining the governance of God. Disciples had to be with him to learn how to do what he did. And Willard goes on to say, Though costly, discipleship once had a very clear, straightforward meaning. The mechanics are not the same today, though. We cannot literally be with him in the same way his first disciples could. 
But the priorities and intentions, the heart or inner attitudes of disciples are forever the same. In the heart of the disciple, there is a desire and there is a decision or settled intent. The disciple of Christ desires above all else to be like him. And given this desire, usually produce the lives and words of those already in the way. There is yet to... There is yet a decision to be made. The decision to devote oneself to becoming like Christ. The disciple is one who, intent upon, intent upon becoming Christ-like, and so dwelling in his faith and practice, systemically and progressively rearranges their affairs to that end. By these actions, even today, one who enrolls in Christ's training becomes his pupil or disciple. And I think about even Stephen, your talk, and Chad's talk just now. Again, all all of what God is doing is bringing us back into communion with Him, bringing us back to this original design and intention for our lives. And so, when Jesus calls people into discipleship, like this is the this is the practical way in which He does it, where we walk with Him and we respond to the things He's asking us to do, and He calls us to do things and He sends us. And so to be a disciple, we are literally like, we're, we're saying, like, okay, like, you're going to call the shots. Lead me, guide me, teach me. And so we see discipleship to Jesus is the widest and most basic vocational and essential calling we are all required to participate in. Because in being his disciples, we rediscover our identity, our humanity, and most importantly, are hardwired to be in a relationship with the God who created us. You and I are called to be disciples. And as we, as we walk our journey of discipleship, he is the one who is helping us navigate our pain, our wounds, maybe our misunderstanding of ourselves or the things that have been distorted or convoluted. I think about the journey of men and women at Wafer Hills. Man, I, I watch it day in and day out where God is just, he's, he's deconstructing lives of pain and brokenness and he's re-engineering it and he's rebuilding it so they can actually have a clear picture of Kaylee. Like, yes, this has been your story, but here's the new story I want to write with your life. Here's what it looks like for you to not have a role in God's kingdom. He's not just interested in getting you into heaven at the end of your life. That's actually not the gospel. The gospel is that new life saturates your life here and today, and it rolls into the eternal life. And I think so many people um, have, haven't received the full gospel. They just kind of, they have this idea, it's like, okay, Jesus came to save me and get me into heaven, and we kind of just, I don't know, drag ourselves through this life and hope, hope for the best. But we see so much that Jesus is actually so interested in bringing new life here and now. So what I want to, maybe I hope you're okay with this, but I briefly just want to pitch a question to you. Uh, Stephen, we kind of were getting at this yesterday, but I want to ask, what is the cost of people missing the invitation to be a, dis a disciple? Like, what is the actual effect on the church and for, for individuals as they walk with Christ? What do they, what do they, what do they forego in not actually taking on that, that mantle of discipleship? Wisdom, yeah. Like growth. 
growth for sure. Yeah, if if if, if this if all, if all this is about is just getting to heaven, like well then hey, you pray the prayer, great. Doesn't matter what you do for your life. The life of a disciple, that's a different invitation. It's not about your destination, it's about what what is God doing in your life moment to moment. And how is he making these these calibrations day to day in your life? So you become the image of Christ throughout throughout your earthly life. And not just, okay, when I get to the end, it's starting to get put back in order. <clears throat> what are we seeing church-wide? Especially in, like the Western church. Jadedness. Jadedness, yeah. Bitterness. People falling away and just saying, you know, this is inconsequential to in my life. Like, you know, I, I grew up in this, this, this institution. I grew up around this, but it really it carries no weight on my life anymore. Anything else? Being a part of the work of God that's happening and joining in with what He's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't know. I don't know what your experience has been, but for me, again, just growing up, my theological framework is kind of like I just didn't see my place in, in God's kingdom unfolding. It's kind of like there's these elevated positions, missionaries, pastors, um, but that wasn't going to be my trajectory. So, I don't know, what's, what's my role? And then you kind of, you kind of do your best to make, make do with like, okay, well, I guess I can do this here. But I, yeah, I, I lack to, to actually see my role in God's kingdom. Anything else? People aren't fully alive in the purpose of what God has put on their lives. Totally. A step back, almost. Not yet. They're just not fully, fully there. Totally. Yeah. There's a difference between almost being like a spectator as opposed to somebody who's actually like in the game. That was my life. I was a spectator Christian, and then, uh, and then, uh, I mean, then I received my invitation to follow him. And again, it started by me doing an altar call and like, okay, I believe. But then there's it was like. Ten years in between that, where it's like, okay, like, will I actually follow him? I can cognitively, you know, agree that I think this is true, but for him to say, "Will you follow me, Adam?" It's like, what does that mean? Like, what, what do I, what do I do day to day to actually follow you? So, I think before I talk about my story, I just want to highlight a couple things because I'm such a story person. So when I think of the characters in the Bible, I, I'm just, I'm imagining their emotional, their emotional responses. I'm thinking about like the, the consequences, the decisions they're making. Like that just that helps me understand the story. I don't know if any of you have seen the Chosen series. I'm a big fan. Again, I know they, they take a lot of imaginative license, um, but I think the thing that's so fun for me is it kind of illuminates the stories. And though it might not be perfectly accurate, a lot of these these stories are plausible. And um, so, anyways, I, I want to talk about just a couple of the disciples calling to follow. And just to unpack what exactly like they'd be taking on and letting go of. So when Jesus extended his invitation to follow me, uh, to whom we now know as the disciples, he was inviting them on a journey of healing, forgiveness, learning, life-forming practical education, painful re-education, and sanctification. And for each of them, the aftermath of their response to follow required very different journeys to be walked out. 
And this is the same case for all of us in this room. So as we consider a couple stories, Matthew 4, 18 to 22. In Matthew's gospel account, he writes this. While Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, and with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they too immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. Luke 5, 27 and 29 says this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And in John 1, 43 to 44, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And those are just kind of the three most prominent accounts we have of disciples being invited to follow. But then we also have the likes of Simon. Simon the Zealot. And we have Judas. Um, we've got people like Mary from Magdala. Uh, all of these people who were, probably received the same invitation at some point, and all of them had to leave things behind. I wish you had more accounts of kind of what, those, what that process would be like for some of them, because I think about Matthew as a tax collector. You know, what is he leaving behind? I mean, there's a, there's, there's a reason that um, tax collecting uh, was something that was, would, would almost seduce uh, Jew, Jews into because there was so much benefit um, under kind of Roman jurisdiction. There was money, there was power, and now he's, he's foregoing that in order to follow this rabbi. And he's, he's joining a team of people that probably would hate him. Very likely, these would have been the people that are actually paying taxes to him. And now they've got to work together. They have this common denominator. They're interested in Jesus, and they're, they, they're responding to the common call, follow me. But now they've got to also figure out how to work with each other and how to reconcile their very different stories. I think of uh, Simon the Zealot. I mean, again, this is, this is a trained assassin. And Jesus is now inviting him into a different type of a different type of way of infiltrating Roman occupation and has nothing to do with violence. So he literally has to put his weapon down. And then he's got to work with a tax collector, which, I mean, he would have, he would have had the right as a zealot to kill because they're traitors. They're traitors to Jewish people. And I just think about these stories. How difficult, day after day, to wake up and say, oh, I gotta work with this guy. Really, Jesus? Like this? This? These are the people you want in this group. But all of them had a common denominator. They wanted to follow Jesus. There was something about what he was inviting them into that captivated their heart. They wanted to learn. They saw that he was actually bringing truth. And I think sometimes we forget that like being a disciple back then would have been very difficult and complex. These men and women who followed Jesus all throughout the Galilean region, back and forth from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of walking. How many times are they pitching camp, taking camp up, walking, building camp, 
staying the night. They're cooking meals together. They're in the wilderness. Jesus is taking them to places they'd never want to go, like Samaria. Like everything he's doing is pushing their buttons. Everything that he's leading them into is exposing these parts of their character that need to be addressed or sanded or adjusted. And so the, the lifelong journey of being a disciple is not easy. It comes with a cost. I can't imagine what it was like for Peter, you know, being a married man. And then, yeah, like what, what is your relationship with your wife like? Where it's like, hey, sweetie, like, I'm going to forego fishing for the next little while, and I'm going to follow, follow Jesus. And so it's like, man, she's got to be on board with this. Otherwise, like, what type of marital strain is going to happen with that? So again, but you think about the arc of Peter's life in the church, like, I'm, I'm guessing she was on board and probably was a, a tremendous part of that ministry. And she probably had distinct roles in it too that we don't even get to hear about. Even somebody like Zebedee, he watches his two sons walk away from the fishing business. He's got to have faith to actually like follow Jesus from a distance. He's like, I'm following by releasing my sons. So there's a cost for everybody who's, who's responding to this call. And there's a cost for you and I today. There are things that we're going to have to walk away from. And there's things that we're going to have to pick up. There's people that we're going to have to leave behind. And there's people we're going to have to learn how to be in relationship with. It's not an easy call. But it's a call that we all are asked to respond to. We can't be spectators. We actually have to. We have to be in the game. So I want to share a couple of my stories because I think that might be help some of the practicalities of what it means to follow him today. And I'm sure everybody in this room has stories of what it looks like for you to follow. Things you've had to let go of, um, wounds you've had to crack open to let them heal. There's probably been um, things that he's called you into that you feel unqualified for or afraid to do. But in that, Jesus calls us to do hard things. And that is part of our day-to-day calling as a disciple. So, a little bit about me. Uh, as I said, my story is a smattering of what I thought were just random kind of things. You know, everything from being a golf instructor to a goalie coach in ice hockey. Um, I'm a Y-whammer. And then I, was a, I worked on a farm uh, in Saskatchewan. And just like, I could never make sense of my story. And so, finally, I felt like the Lord kind of, like, helped me narrow it and said, okay, I want you to go to Trinity. Uh, I moved up from Manitoba, did my business degree, and I thought that I was going to, you know, be involved in overseas missions, building businesses, and um, I had this elaborate plan. And then when I was at school, I was kind of like, oh, maybe I want to get into more, like, corporate settings or larger organizations. And I met, I met Alexa there in my third year. We got married. And I was ready after training just to kind of launch into my life. I'm like, okay, I got a business degree. I, I, I had a bit of a, a role of influence during my time at Trinity, and so um, I was feeling I was feeling pretty high coming out of my, my time at Trinity. And uh, graduated, got married, and I could not find a job. And I looked high and low. I was literally scouring. Indeed, I actually went to Wagner Hills because I I volunteered there. I begged them for a job. And the most docile and kind employee that is still there to, the day, to this day, Greg, basically said, like, you're not ready for this. 
actually, I, I, I feel that there's like a, a dis-ease in you that you need to start with God before you come and work in an environment like this. And he just, and he was shot so straight. And I remember like, again, this was after like months of trying to find a job. I couldn't find one. And I remember driving off the property where he knows I'm like, fine, God, like, like if, 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 this is, if this is how hard it's going to be for me to like find my place and my role, like, like I'm tired. I'm tired of, of trying to make this happen. So the first job I had was scrubbing a fence. And again, like, I'm at, I'm, I feel like I'm up here, and then God just brings me down to this job where I'm, I have a bucket of water, and I'm on a 44-acre property, on a, a vinyl fence, and I'm literally just scrubbing one chunk of fence at a time for days on end. And uh, as my wife and I were getting settled into our life, we were consolidating all of our possessions, and I had to take a trip to a thrift store. So I went to downtown Langley, and it was called Bibles for Missions at the time, and I donated uh, a, load of, a load of stuff there. And uh, one of the older gentlemen that volunteered there, he was like, hey, like, uh, we're actually we're looking for an assistant manager. And I kind of like, in, internally, I scoffed. I'm like, come on, like, I just finished my business degree. I'm not going to work at a thrift store. <laughs> that, was, that was the part of my heart. And, uh, and I went away. And I'm like, well, I'm not finding any work anywhere else. And so I prayed about it. And I felt like the Lord was like, follow me. Like, I have something here for you. And um, I took that job. And I did it for three years, and the only way I can describe it, I joke about it with friends, that it was, a, it was my three years of purgatory, mm-hmm. where like God specifically put me there because he had to really rework my character. My impulsivity, my unwillingness to submit to authority, my constant belief that my ideas are better than everybody else's. Like This is the place where he just ground me yeah. down. And again, if, if any of you have ever worked in a thrift store, uh, it is chaos, especially in the downtown core of Langley. Um, you're not just dealing with donations, you're dealing with uh, a very wide spectrum of people uh, with all sorts of personalities. And I did that for three years. And I remember just working the back door and like literally these five cars, six cars in the wrong, you're just literally unloading boxes all day, sorting through these things. People would like, literally bring you like, their soiled laundry like, oh, here's a donation for your missions work around the world. It's like, really? Like, you couldn't even clean it? And a lot of stuff, like, I just have to check my heart. Like, Man, people suck. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, after three years of doing this, I actually, uh, I, it unfortunately didn't end well. I actually snapped. And uh, I had a gentleman show up at the back door, and he had a, literally, like, just a piece of plastic off of a Jeep Cherokee. And he was donating this, this fragment of a bumper. And he's like, here, I'd like to donate this to your cause. I'm like, uh, we actually can't take that. And he's like, well, that's rather pretentious. And I said, well, no, like, we, we can only take things that we can sell. And I'm like, this is a rather specific item. Like, people aren't going to come down to downtown and find a bumper for their Jeep. And he's like, fine, you can't have it. Great. He walks away. And uh, some of the people, he came back with a pair of shoes. And they're brand new shoes. He's like, how about these? Would you like these? I said, yeah, we can sell those. He's like, you can't have them. And something in me just like snapped. And I went into this mode and I just, I just became belligerent. And I told this guy what I thought of him. And all these people were witnessing me just lose my cool. And my response in the end is like, you know what, everybody, just take all your donations, just put them on the floor here. Um, I'm not even going to look at them. You just throw them on the ground. And I slammed the door and I went to my boss at the time and I said, I'm done. I'm giving you my two weeks notice. Um, I can't work here. I can't work here. 
this is this is it. And that's how my, my job ended at the thrift store. <laughs> my wife wasn't working, um, so I didn't have a plan B, so both unemployed. And uh, I remember just feeling so confused. I don't know if you've been in a situation like that, where it's just like, I, I just felt like garbage. I got no nowhere to go, nothing to do. I'm not exactly jiving with the Lord. And uh, uh, and I wasn't even like, praying at this time. But then I got a call randomly. Uh, I'm the executive director of Wagner Hills, named Jason Roberts. And he's like, hey, your name came up on a board meeting. Um, would you be interested in coming to talk to us about a job? And I'm thinking back to three years earlier when I went there and asked him for a job. I said, you're not ready. And I'm like, if I wasn't ready then, I'm definitely not ready now. So I think I think you guys heard wrong. And he said, just come to the farm and have a conversation with us. And so I got there and talked with them. And Jason was already convinced. He's like, no, I think God's calling you. So now it's up to whether you think God's calling me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think this is what God would call me into. Not in this state. Like, I'm... I'm emotionally all over the place. I quit my job on an impulse, like, and this this seems like a way more difficult job than what I was doing. And I remember as I began to re-engage God in that process, the question was again, like, will you follow me into this? And uh, after wrestling, it's like, okay. But it was so obvious, like, okay, God, like, if, if you're gonna do this, like, it has to be you because I have no recovery background. 28. I have no 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 education. So my my degree was in business. So like all I have is you. So either this is this is going to be kind of if you're going to sustain it, or it's going to fall flat on its face. And I remember from day one, I had to learn to depend on the Lord in a way that I, I I've never had to in my life because my qualifications didn't match up, my experience didn't match up, my emotional well-being definitely was not at the place it needed to be. And I realize now, looking back, like God actually brought me into Wagner Hills. I probably could have been a client just as easy as some of the men that I was teaching, but he was doing the same work in my life that he was doing theirs. This restoration, this re-education, this relearning of everything I thought I knew about him and about myself. And it was a really humbling thing to be invited into a role where it's like, why me? And it's helped me understand kind of what I think a lot of the disciples in the first century would have gone through the same same process. Why me? Why us? What what could we possibly offer to your your plan of redeeming people's lives and and the world? And as we think about these different places and spaces that God calls us into and out of. I think it's so important for us to, to remember like God's nature and character is is into environments where like our qualifications don't match. I think he's very intentional in that. And sometimes uh, if you're anything like me, like I've I've kind of got my, my Rolodex of what I can do and what I should be doing. And then there's all these things like, no, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. And God's like, man, like, what would you let me? Would you be willing to actually like go outside your comfort zone? Would you be willing to go to this demographic of people? That was part of the other thing at the thrift store. The people I'm working with are all people my parents' age. And I have, I'm going to be honest, I have, I have baggage with uh, baby boomers. Um, 
I had a really tough relationship with my dad, and this is who I'm working with day in and day out. And I was the millennial, and I everybody had their opinions about millennials, and I had to learn how to love this demographic of people. I had to learn how to find common ground with them. And you begin to see God's intentionality. Like it's not arbitrary. It's not okay. We're doing this for this season just because it's a paycheck. It's like I'm shaping you, forming you. I'm calling you to something. This is going to force you to commune with me in a way where it's going to break you in a way so that I can actually work on this. The thrift store broke me. Raven Hills healed me. These were both two very uncomfortable places and roles for me to say yes to. And then following Jesus into them, it exposed a lot of my a lot in my own life that was hard to come to grips with and work through. Even at Wagner, I had to go through the steps myself. I, didn't, I had no clue what the steps were. And so I did a freedom session with, with Lene as she orchestrated it for Southgate. And that was the first time I was ever exposed to work like this. And I'm like, I got baggage. I have things I have to work through. And I'm sitting at the table with the people that I'm leading saying, like, I have issues. One of the most obvious issues I was holding at the time is I, was on, I owned a, a boatload of pot stocks. And I was trying to get rich. This is when everybody was loading up on, on marijuana stocks. And I'm sitting, working at a recovery facility, and I've got this big thing in my closet. I'm like, man, like, this is a disqualifier. Like, what am I doing? And, uh, and I had to confess this with this group of people. And I remember one of the guys' responses. He's like, wow, like, actually, like, you just got a little more credible in my eyes because you know what it's like to burn money on drugs just like I do. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And that's, that was an uncomfortable thing to... I, again, I'm an employee of this organization and I'm going through this process and I'm just looking, okay, God, like, clearly, like, this isn't about what I have to offer, but you're doing something in me. And that is like, I have a friend, he just finished his master's in divinity, and I remember he wrote a paper, and he talked about the paradox of when, when Jesus calls people, he's calling them to go and grow simultaneously. He's not waiting for people to get to this mature statement, okay, now I'll send you. But he's doing both at the same time. I'm sending you, knowing full well that you're not qualified for what I'm calling you to do. But because of that, that's where I get to fill in the cracks. And it's quite the experience, because you really learn how to depend on God when you know that you don't have the qualifications. So we go with Him, and we grow with Him simultaneously. And it's a gift that He's willing to send us before we're qualified. Because He carries the load, and He gets the glory. Chad talked about it. It's so tempting for us to try and take the glory for ourselves. My, this is my vocational thing. This is my little empire that I'm building. This is my unique skill set that nobody else has. And God's very intentional about just pulling the pulling the brick out just to make that fall so we realize like, hey, this isn't about your kingdom. The moment we start doing that, that's when everything gets heavy. That's when we start looking like me scrounging and and trying to think, well, this is what I should be qualified to do. This is the type of opportunity I should get. And life gets heavy, life gets frantic, and we don't become people of peace. Does that make any sense? Yes. So the response to following is tough. 
And there's plenty of scriptures and parables that Jesus tells about what it means to follow him. And so I wanted to finish with those and, um, and then we have some time for Q&A. Luke 9, 23 to 26 says this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. A little bit later in Luke's account. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are strong, strong statements. But again, Jesus isn't malicious. He's not, he's not out to make people's lives miserable. But he is getting at the heart of the fact that like, when he calls, we've got all sorts of things that we're tethered to that we don't want to let go of. There's relationships. There's lies and beliefs that we've held to that we say, okay, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I still feel like I'm worthless. I still feel like I have no skills. I still feel um, less than. Or there's people who choose to follow, but it's like, I need to keep my little empire. I need to keep my safety net. I need to have my insurance policy. Or they'll say, I'll follow you, but just not to that group of people. I can't do that. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to do, I can't do the youth. I can't do the older generation. I can't do people who maybe look different than me or have different cultural background than me. There's all these different things that people are kind of just saying, like, I can't do that. Sorry, like somebody else can do it. And it's usually very specific. The things that Jesus calls us into is because he's revealing something. It's not just about what we have to offer. It's about what he wants to reveal in us. I think there's no more telling story than that. The story of the rich, rich young ruler, which we've gone over a couple times here at the last couple months. But I want to read it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all, you, all that you have and distribute uh, what, you, what you make to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, Oh, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible of man is possible of God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and we followed you. And Jesus said, from truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. And in uh, eternal life. And it's a very specific thing that Jesus is, is asking of this, this ruler. Because he knows where his heart is tethered. He knows where probably his identity is tied up. Again, you think about a rich person in the ancient world. Um, it's not because they've got money in a bank account. It's because they have a load of possessions. They've got land. They've probably got livestock. And so for him, if he wants to follow Jesus, he's going to have to find a way to, to deal with all this. And it would be a lot to let go of. My wife Alexa gave a, a message a couple months ago on the narrow door. And I think her message, again, it's one of those times where I'm sitting and I'm listening, like, this, is my this is blowing my mind. And she talked about the, the narrow door being a gift. And I've never heard that. I always, I always do the narrow door as something negative. It's like, oh man, you gotta really try and find your way in. Only a few people can actually fit. And she said it's actually a gift because when you come to a doorway that is that small, you have to really take an inventory. Like, what can I take through the door? If you got a big backpack, if you got all sorts of possessions, it's like, well, those aren't coming through. So all that I can come through this door with into this, into this other space is what fits. I think Jesus does that all the time with us. He probably changes the door size in our lives where it's like, hey, listen, like, that's not going to fit. Your ego, not going to fit. Your, uh, your, your multitude of possessions, you can't actually bring those in here. Alexa used the example of trying to fit a, a sectional in one of the basement suites in, in Willoughby. Like, it's impossible. Like, they got these pin, like, these pin corners that you literally can't get a couch down and through. And so you basically have to reprioritize what, what kind of furniture can you get in the house. And I think that's what Jesus does with us. It's like, it's not going to fit. If you want to step into my presence and into this space, you're going to have to leave that thing on the other side of the door. And I think with this too, like, I think we know that Jesus' heart is for family and for, um, he's not saying don't, like, you know, just walk away from away from these things. But even how many people have had to step into God's calling or the, thing, the project he has for them, and it requires them to reallocate their time or their resources. There's not maybe as much to, to do things with the ones you love, but you, he's calling you to actually invest here. That's a hard thing. I'm learning that more and more with our newborn daughter. Like, time is is limited, so for me to do something like this, it's, there's a cost. Alexa's going to have to take care of Willa a few, like quite a few more hours in the days leading up. And just beginning to understand that, like, it's not that I don't love Willa, it's not that I don't love my daughter, but like, there's different things that you get called to where you have to reallocate your presence and time. And that's a sacrifice. That's just, that's just, that's the journey we all have to walk through. But one last story. 
and I think it's it's the one that it really kind of speaks to me the most is um, is Peter's story. Here is somebody who has answered the call to follow, and he's walked with Jesus, and he has displayed moments where he's just confident, I will I will be with you till the end. And we have this story in John's account where um, Peter has a moment where it's almost like everything kind of unravels in a moment. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, sorry, let's skip ahead. The story goes, Jesus is, is being put on trial and Simon is there, um, present, and somebody says, hey, like, we, we recognize you. Like, you're... You're one of the one of the followers of, of Jesus. And he denies it. And I think about that, like, man, like what what happened in the lead up? That that be a logical response for, for Peter. And he's already aware of what Judas has just done. And I think about that night. Two followers both answered the call. Both Judas and Simon said, we will follow you. Both made major, major mistakes that night. Or they, they made decisions with huge consequences. And sadly, um, one of their stories ended in an absolute tragedy. And think of how many people who, maybe at one point in they said, yeah, I'll follow you something happens and the weight of their failing the weight of their not coming through when it mattered most leads them into a place of despair ending in almost like a, a spiritual and also like a physical death just like Judas but I was wondering what, what was it that got Simon through the night why didn't he go the same route I mean he would have been warranted the same response the, sh- the shame and guilt he felt but he made it through the night and we hear that he actually was able to hear word of the resurrection. And then there's this account in John 21 where I just, I, again, I just, I think this is my encouragement for all of us here. Like, whether you've answered the call to follow before and you've, you feel like you've blown it or you've just kind of lost the, the vision and the passion you once had, this is a story for all of us. And so we're back at the Sea of Galilee where the whole story started, where Simon first said, Yes, I'll follow you. And they finished breakfast, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is John 21, 15, 19, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to Peter, follow me. If there's any doubt 
us that that Jesus isn't interested in extending that invitation again to us. When we fall away or we, we lose heart or or the pains and burden of life kind of distract us from following him, this story just kind of breaks through that thing like that invitation still stands. He's inviting us to follow us. To follow him. And I know for me there's been moments in my life where Again, you play that game, like, am I in, am I out? Like, am I still a son, am I not? And, and that's where, for me, like, I'm adopted. And that's been a huge, I think, very intentional part of my story that God has used to, like, teach me about this idea of what it means to be brought into a family that you had no part of joining. I was one month old when I was adopted. I was given a new name, a new, new citizenship, a new home, a new new inheritance, and I did nothing to earn it. It's, I was one month old, and for me, the the only part I had to play was I just had to live into I had to live into that new reality. I had to live into this new family name that I was given that I did nothing for. And the temptation is to think like, oh man, do I belong? Do I not belong? Like, am I really a woolchuck or am I this or that? And you go back and forth, and I think about you know. Even for Simon, like, he knew that he was a part of God's family. He responded to the call. He was brought into it. And I think even for, for him here, like, there might be questions like, man, am I, can I really still be a part of this? Does God really still want me in the family? Do I still have an inheritance? And Jesus says, yeah, you do follow me. One funny thing. Verse 20. After this, Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. Following them, the one who had also learned, uh, leaned back against Jesus during uh, supper and said, Lord, um, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What are you going to do with John? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about how other people are being used or called or positioned. Your job is to follow me. And that's one of my other big problems is I'll always kind of peg myself in comparison to other people. It's like, oh, they're doing this. I wish I could do this. Or they're ahead of me at age 31 and I'm, you know, and it's just garbage. And Jesus is just saying, like, stop it. Like, you follow me. Don't worry about what other people are doing or where they're going. So as you think about your life, I think about Stephen's message last night. Like, do you know who your creator is? Do you know what you've been made for? And who you've been made for? And then as you think about Chad's talk, again, like, who is it that actually is leading and guiding and fueling your life? And then as you think about your practical life, what is it that he's calling you to follow him into? or out of? I think we have to ask that question many times throughout our lives because he leads us through seasons. And so coming back to that card that I've given you, as you discern how to answer that question, what is he calling you to follow him into and follow him out of, 
What is he calling you to let go of? Those are the practical things that only you and him can figure out. And I think in the context of community, you can actually um, discern a lot of that. Chad has been instrumental in helping me figure out what it means for me to follow Jesus day to day. My wife has been instrumental in that. But the thing that has been really anchoring is having kind of this overarching description. Adam, I've created you to be a craftsman of relationship. So as you think about the context of your life, when I'm, when I'm calling you into something or out of something, make sure you stay stay in that vein. Stay with people. Don't go chasing after things or objects because I've created you to be with people. And for some of you, the, the overarching kind of call in your life might look different. Your passions or your skills might lead you into different things. So don't forego your creativity. Don't forego maybe your your um, desire for justice. Don't forego the things that God has, has, has engineered you to do. And then I just have some parting questions. So, as you think about responding to this, this talk, is there something you need to unlearn? Is there something you need to learn? Is there something he's wanting you to step into faith? Trusting him? It could be financial. It could be a type of transition in your life. It could be starting something. Is there pain you're carrying that you need to let go of that is just literally sucking? the power of the Spirit. I witness this um, more often than I I like to at, at Wagner Hills because man, the pain that people carry it is on full display. And for, for many we, we almost hold our pain like a weapon. Like, you know, it's like we experience pain like a knife sticking outside. Instead of pulling it out, we actually begin. We actually begin protecting it because we want. It. We want to hold our pain to justify our anger, or our bitterness, or our distrust. And to follow Jesus, we actually have to, we have to deal with those things. We can't keep walking with it. We can't keep bleeding out, thinking that we're going to be free. He's 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 calling us to let it go. Are there material things in your life that you need to let go of? Is there a geographical move he's wanting you to make? I had to return to the person next to you and discuss, but I feel like it might be a little bit too intense. But maybe if you humor me as you hear all this, I don't know, what kind of, what's kind of evoked for you, or what are you kind of processing?
put you back on track, but I like that you reminded me of that. You just go, start running, and then grow as you're doing that together with other people. That's so, so fun. It's, it's, it's about expressors, but again, like there's, there's such a beauty in it because it's like, this is all I have, so if you want me to keep doing this, like you have to fill the cracks. I remember my first couple of weeks at Wakefield, I was like, I don't have anything to teach. I'm supposed to run classes, so I'm literally driving up. Okay, Lord, like, what am I going to talk about today? Because I literally don't have any time to prepare classes. And every day, he gave me something. And I can't explain it other than that. Like, he just, he's like, just drive to work, get on the stage, and I'll give you what you need. And man, day in and day when he did that, and that was, that was exhilarating. He's like, oh, God's talking to me. God's actually like, this isn't a figment of my imagination, but he is in this. So, that's good. Um, so, we always talk about like the door like narrowing down, but will there be any like instances where the door kind of widens, widens up? Uh, for sure, I, and I think even the, the stories I, I shared, like, it's a case-by-case -case thing. Like, for some, like, he needs to kind of, he needs to cut some attachments and he needs to, to whittle our lives down. And then, I mean, I'm in a season where he's beginning to expand and he's giving, he's giving me more than I ever thought I, I would get. And so it's, that, and that's part of stepping into his, his call in my life, like he's actually giving more. Um, but what I have to be careful of is, do I start, do I kind of start clinging on to these things and begin to, I don't know, depending on them. I, uh, I think Gollum is such a, a perfect example of what, what happens when the things that we're given begin to possess us. And so I think, yeah, he's always kind of turning the dial depending on where our affection and attention is going. So, I hope. Any other thoughts or personal reflections before we go to lunch? Questions or feedback, I'd love to hear it. I hope this has been somewhat helpful. Um, but yeah, Lord, we, we just acknowledge that all of us have been extended a pretty incredible invitation. That even in light of the broken state of humanity and the presence of sin in our lives, that you look at us you look us dead in the eyes and you say, follow me. And on that journey of following you, you're restoring all of these things. You're restoring our understanding of who created us, who sustains us, who gives us work to do and callings to have. And so much of that is, is discovered on the journey of just walking with you, talking with you going through the day-to-day, -day, working, interacting with family, maintaining our homes and, and lives. And I pray that we never lose sight of the fact that you're always calling us into things and out of things. 
and in a world that just loves to build itself on comfort and predictability and insurance policies and control and self-sufficiency, we recognize that it's it will be increasingly difficult to say, we're going to follow you and let go of some of these, these safety nets, let go of some of these securities. And so I pray for each of us here that we would just have the discernment to know when we need to let things go and when you're calling us to pick things up. We need to pray. Amen. Yeah.